0: If you would please open your Bibles to Isaiah 35 and then to Acts chapter 3. We'll be reading both texts. They are bound to one another in ways that you will see. And if you would please stand together that we can express our reverence for God's written word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So God's people strive to hear and heed his word faithfully together. Let's do that now. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now please turn to Acts chapter 3. Dear Holy Spirit, we find your word to be beautiful and true. We ask now that we would enter in through the ministry of the word in such a way that your name would be honored. We believe that you inspired your word. We believe that you preserve your word. And we believe it is by the power of the resurrection that you'll bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word that faith would be worked in our hearts and that together as the people of God, we might leap for joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some things in this world are rather appropriately named. If you ever have gone to New York and gone to the site where the Twin Towers were once located, you know that they were perfectly named because they weren't just tall buildings. uh, They were two twins reaching seemingly up into heaven itself, appropriately called the Twin Towers. And if you've seen the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, you know that it's not just a long bridge, but at a certain time of the day, the sun hits it just right, making it almost seem to turn to gold. In our text today, there is a gate that is given a rather appropriate name. It is called the beautiful gate, but it's much more than just a door. It is that place that separated the Jew from the Gentile, if you will, the clean from the unclean. And it also becomes the scene where the first healing miracle in the book of Acts is performed. This remarkable display of the power of the kingdom of God here at the beautiful gate. We're going to work through our text with the help of the outline that you have in your bulletin. And first consider together the plight of this man described in our text as a lame beggar. Scenery is important, and so is the scenery in our text today. In many ways, this miracle, which is the first in the book of Acts of its kind, sets the scene for Peter's upcoming sermon. The next text is bound together to this one. One is the stage, and the other is the sermon that is preached upon that stage. But here the scene is that of a lame man who is about to be healed the scene is the temple and if you remember from our time together in Ezra and Nehemiah this is of course the same temple. It is the temple that the people of Israel rebuilt after their time in exile. But one thing that was notable about that temple back in Ezra Nehemiah in contrast to this temple is that the older temple was very unimpressive. This one is opulent. It is beautiful. Remember what the old men in the book of Ezra did when they saw the foundation of the rebuilt temple? They wept and they mourned because they remembered the former glory of the old temple, but that temple was a thin shadow of the first former glory. The temple in Acts 3, however, had become known as Herod's Temple. This was, in many ways, like those TV shows where you watch people uh, take an old house And not only renovate to it, uh, renovate it, but add to it, making it remarkable and beautiful in so many different ways. King Herod, slowly and over time, had, in a sort of sense, adopted this temple, and he built not only onto it, he built up, he built around, and he made it absolutely beautiful. He filled it with remarkable and extensive treasure. So the temple that you have now in Acts chapter 3 is beautiful, and it is glorious, just as is this gate. Jesus' own disciples commented on the beauty of the temple in Mark 13... At the very heart of this temple is what we would know as the Holy of Holies. What made the temple ultimately beautiful was not its outward possessions, but its inward person, that is, the person and presence of God. At the heart of the temple is the Holy of Holies, a sacred place that only the high priest can enter, and that but one time a year. The most beautiful part of the temple, again, was not its material possession, but the person who was there. God was there. God inhabited his temple at praise of his people. From the outside of the temple, if you will, moving now to a different perspective, one would walk through a series of successive gates, one gate after another, making your way. If you imagine that you were the high priest going in one time a year, you would walk through a number of doors going all the way from the outside all the way to the inside. Not only would you go through doors, if you were to look up, these different gates uh, led you to different courts, uh, several of which had expansive ceilings and were wonderfully decorated. The outer court, which is the court where we have our scene today, was the court of the Gentiles, but even that outward court of the Gentiles was beautiful with an expansive ceiling above it and wonderful, ornate decorations all around it. It is in this court that Jesus would drive out the money changers. After the court of the Gentiles was the court of the women, followed by the court of the Jews. And It was here in the court of the Jews that the men of Israel would gather together three times a day to pray. This is our opening verse. Peter and John have gathered together with the men of Israel in the inner court of the temple to pray. It is the ninth hour, which is technically what we would call 3 p.m., in the pattern of Israel at this time, people would go to the temple and pray it three times a day, nine in the morning, noon, and three in the afternoon. If you think your schedule is busy, take a look at theirs. Peter and John are found here at this time of day, the third prayer time in the afternoon. <clears throat> and perhaps it catches your attention, it strikes you as a little bit odd that Peter and John are in the temple at all. Not for some time would the divide between Christianity and Judaism become as punctuated as we now know it. Arguably not until 70 A.D. when the temple collapses. Throughout the book of Acts, you see Paul often beginning his ministry in different Gentile cities by first going to the Jewish synagogue. It's one of the first things that he would do, almost as though part of his evangelistic strategy was to first get kicked out of the synagogue and then go to the Gentiles. It's a great church planting strategy. Here, Peter and John enter the temple, but not just them. Another man comes. And note that this man who comes does not come to pray. He comes to beg. He comes to plead in a certain sense for his life, and he does it day by day. We are not given the name of the man, and yet we are given a rather full description. This is a lame man who is also a beggar. We are told intimate details about his disease. He's not simply lame. He's not simply a beggar, but he has been lame from his birth. The Greek language is literally from inside his womb, almost as though uh, it was known that he was lame inside. And then he comes out of the womb, and this has been the very sum of his entire life. Now, as you read through this and you think about it, Arguably, you and I take many things for granted. I want you to think about even this day. When you woke up in the morning, you opened your eyes, and you probably didn't stop and think what a miracle it is that my eyes worked again. And when you heard uh, the first noise of the day, which for some of us was around 2 a.m., when you heard the first noise of the day, you didn't stop and say thanks that your ears are still working. And when you got out of bed and you stretched out your feet... And there's that moment when your toes touch the ground and your legs do what your legs are supposed to do. They enable you to rise up and walk. You probably did not stop and give thanks that your feet and your legs do what you tell them to do. Not the case with this man. Every morning when this man wakes up, he is on the floor. In many ways, his life is confined to the floor. The mat that he's carried on is his closest friend, one from which he is arguably almost never departed. In fact, the only way that he can rise up and come to the temple, even to beg, is with the help of family members or friends. Even to beg, someone must carry him. We are told that is not simply there on this day. We're told that he is there every day. Many of us know certain street corners, Where almost every day of the week, not only can you expect to find someone there, there are perhaps even certain faces that you've grown familiar with. Maybe people you've even spoken to. They're just always there. They just sort of blend in like the trees and the buildings and the signs that are there. That's what this man would be like. And when you think about it, it's no small task that he is here every day. Uh, Whether family or friends brought him, we do not know. But what we do know is what is brought him is love. Why do we say it that way? Because the temple sits upon an elevated hill, and then to reach these successive gates, including the beautiful gate, one had to be carried up a significant number of stairs. This would be carrying, uh, like carrying not simply a large bag of potatoes, it would be carrying a human body that cannot carry itself. He's literally dead weight. Carried up these steps, up the hill to the temple, Day after day after day after day. It's a pitiful life. And that, in many ways, is the point. And not only that... You can tell that in some ways he has resolved or abandoned himself to his poor and lowly condition. He is not described here as one who has come to pray. He is not described here as one who has come to ask for healing or to even send others in on his behalf to pray that he might be healed. His life has been reduced to simply being sat down day after day at the outside of the temple gate to ask for alms, to beg for money. And many of us can understand how he got here. Sadness can turn to sorrow, and sorrow sustained over time can turn to surrender. When we're reduced to the things that seem to cripple and hold us down. Now, only begging from those who can walk does this man find meaning in his life in the hope that they might find pity on him, a man who cannot walk. So this is the plight of the beggar, which leads us to thankfully consider the power of the kingdom. Aren't you glad there's another point? It is fitting that he should be brought to this particular gate, but it is also uh, sad in a certain sense. The beautiful gate was named as such because it was literally quite beautiful to behold. Herod had covered the posts of the beautiful gate with silver and gold. And you can see how that fits in to the story and the brief interaction between Peter and John and the man. The man comes and he sits down, not simply outside the temple, but particularly outside of this gate that is painted with money, painted with silver and gold, the value of the day. The lame man sits here with his back toward the gate, hoping that those who pass by would see him and show pity upon him. And here again, we find a point of contact with the text, because what the poor beggar does is hope that people will see him and pity him. And yet, how many times have you and I gone past people who are begging and made one resolved plan, which was what? Not to look at them. I can't see you. We do it all the time. Sometimes people in our family give food and water to the homeless. Often we ignore them and even resist making eye contact because it's painfully awkward for us and perhaps just is awkward for them. Our family never gives money. But in the first century, when certain patterns of life and abuse were different, that is what people would often do. When Peter and John see this lame beggar, they do the opposite of what you and I often do. Rather than avoid eye contact, they gaze right at him. The language in the text is actually uh, quite strong. They looked at him as though staring into him. You know the difference? There are times when people look at you, and there are times when people look into you. My grandmother had a look. She had a look that would look at you, and you could keep moving when she looked at you. She had another look that she often employed that would almost suspend you in the air, almost as though freezing you up against a wall. You know that look. That's the way Peter and John are here described as looking at that man. Here is a man who had been lame from his birth, whose whole life was a constant reminder of the brokenness of this world. But for him, the reminder is in his body and is with him every day. The story of his life is a pitiful one. Here is a man who had never run with his friends, walked beside his parents, or even stood up to attend to the daily rituals of life. And when Peter and John look at them, notice it's both of them who say, look at us, almost as though saying, we see you. Unlike so many others that pass by, here is the mercy and compassion of the kingdom of God, that the people of God see what the world does not see, that the people of God will stare into what the world would otherwise avoid. And the man gets excited. He knows this routine. He knows how it works. People intend not to look at you because they don't want to either be bothered by you or intend to give nothing to you. But Peter and John are looking right at him. And all of those who would give alms, or at least many, if they would make eye contact, that's a very good sign that they would perhaps take pity upon him and share money with him. Not only do Peter and John look right at him, they tell him to look back. Surely this man was about to get what he was asking for. And what was he asking for? Do not forget it. What is his life reduced to? Asking for money. For alms, if we look in the language of verse 6, but Peter said, I have no what? What's painted on the, ghost, on the post behind, on the gate, silver and gold. Peter said, almost poetically, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth rise up and walk. This is beautiful language. Their pockets were empty, but they were not powerless to help. They were full of the gospel, and with them has come the power of the kingdom of God. We see that very clearly in at least two ways. One is the particular name that they use. It's not simply in Jesus' name or in Jesus Christ's name, but what they say particularly is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There are wonderful things here. The very idea of name associates power. Power. The power in Peter and John is not found in Peter and John themselves, but rather in the one who has sent them. As Scripture says elsewhere, the name of God is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. There is power in the name. To claim the name, as Peter and John do, is like saying, by the authority of Jesus, I'm about to do something. In the name of Jesus, I'm about to do something. But again, notice the particular name is not simply Jesus, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you remember every time that you say Nazareth, if you're a Jew, you're supposed to turn and spit. Nazareth is a name that signals curse, rejection, lowliness, despisement. Nazareth is not the name of power or royalty, but rather of humility and emptiness. Nothing good, as the Pharisees said, had ever come out of Nazareth except for one thing, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter invokes the name of the one who left heaven to come to earth. The Lord who not only came down from heaven, but if you will, in a manner of speaking, out of the temple. The one who passed through the Holy of Holies, leaving that inner abode, passing through the court of the Jews, The court of the women, now here to the court of the Gentiles. The Lord who came down, and though he was strong, he made himself nothing. Though he was full, he made himself empty. Though he was king of kings and lord of lords, he made himself the servant of sinners. He traveled, if you will. Not only through the beautiful gate that was perfectly named, he went all the way to another place that was rather fittingly named. This Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, uh, came through the beautiful gate, and he went to a place called Golgotha, perfectly named place of the skull, the place of the cross. This Jesus of Nazareth, Naz, I can't say it today. Nazareth became an exile. Exiled away from the presence of God at the cross. When you think about the plight of this man, is a man who could not enter into the temple physically to pray because he could not walk physically. But not only that, the curse that he bore, the sickness in his body rendered him unclean. He was unfit and he was unfit to enter the temple. So again, Jesus came all the way from heaven heaven above to a hellish earth beneath, all the way from inside the Holy of Holies through the beautiful gate to the place of the cross, and was even exiled, much as this man was from the life of this world, as he took upon himself not simply a drop of the curse as this lame man experiences, but Jesus endured, beloved, for the sake of his people, the fullness of the curse. All of it and all the way to the point of death. What is the point of this text, and why is it in the Bible? What is the point of the story? It's to display the power of the kingdom of God, the love of the one of Jesus of Nazareth, who sees what the world so often tries to avoid, who leans in when others lean out who has not simply power to heal and power to save, but a very desire within his own heart to do exactly that. A ministry that does not end with himself and his own earthly life, but rather now is extended through the ministry of his church. A ministry in the name of Jesus. A ministry that displays the power of the cross. Jesus' life very importantly it does not end with death it does not end at that perfectly named spot Golgotha the place of the skull to say it this way Jesus would again after death pass through the beautiful gate enter in to a holy of holies, a gate, however, that leads not back into the earthly temple, but rather a heavenly one. And the fruit of his work now from within that heavenly temple, that heavenly abode, is that not only should he pass through the beautiful gate, but he will take others and lead them by the hand. The story begins with a man who cannot enter in to the temple of God. The story ends with a man now inside the temple, praising the name of God, leaping Jumping, not simply walking. It is a remarkably beautiful story. This man is lifted up by Peter and John. They're little word plays that the Bible often engages here. Uh, The language of lifting up is the very same language of the resurrection. It's used all over the New Testament. What they do is symbolic of taking a man who is bound to the wages of sin, which is death. The curse all over him from his birth. How did he come into the world? A sinner. How did he live his life? Stained by the reality, the everlasting grip of sin. And who alone could break it but Jesus. And when it is broken, how fitting it is that the first words that are said to him are rise up. Resurrection words. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You know who it includes even the lame, even lame people like you and me. This is the power of the kingdom on dramatic display at the beautiful gates of an earthly temple. The Son of God has returned to his temple in Acts 3. Not in the flesh, he is not walking among them incarnate, but he has returned nonetheless in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. The name of Jesus is now being exalted inside and outside the temple of God, not only where the Jews can go, but where the Gentiles often come. In the court of the women, in the Holy of Holies, the name of Jesus will now be exalted. And this, beloved, is exactly what Isaiah 35 foresaw and promised. It is the arrival of the kingdom of God. And what would mark the arrival of God's kingdom? but a visible reverse of the curse, a highway that would lead into the presence of God, a beautiful gate that would open up and many would enter in from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And not only would it gather widely and broadly, it would gather many who are unable on their own to enter into the kingdom of God. As we all are, in many ways, the point of the story is not that he is lame and we are not. It's that we are all lame spiritually. We are all stained spiritually. We are all broken by the effects of the curse. And what we all need is for someone named Jesus of Nazareth to lift us up. This is what Isaiah foresaw a highway leading into the presence of God. Doors open wide, and inside those city walls, inside that beautiful temple, would there not only be people there walking, but even leaping, Isaiah describes, leaping for joy. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame not only walk, they jump, they get air under their feet. And it leads to our final point the praises of the thankful. There are two responses that we should consider. The first is of the lame man himself. What do you think about his jumping and leaping around? It's like Gollum when he gets the ring back. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there is still time for you. (laughs) But let me ask, let me come at it this way. If I told you today that today is the last day of your life that you would be able to walk or jump, what would you do? I bet you'd get a little bit of air time. I think you would walk. And even you who can't would try to jump. <clears throat> what if you were a grown man or a grown woman and it was the first day of your life you had ever walked? What would you do? You would walk and you would jump, just like this man. Do you know where the English word dancing comes from? I know this is dangerous territory in a Presbyterian church. It comes from a German word, "dansen," which means to stretch, to stretch out the legs, to stretch out the muscles, and then they relax. It's almost as though this might be a stretch. It's almost as though this lame man is dancing. Dancing in the temple of God. He's not simply moving. He's hustling. He's not simply walking. He's jumping. He's not simply jumping. He's leaping, and he's leaping for joy as he enters the temple of God. Just think of it, a place he'd never been, and yet for the majority of his life, sat and watched so many others not simply walk, but enter into the presence of God. This is a man who was not described at the beginning of the text as even praying, and here is described at the end of the text as praising and praising God, and why, for what reason might this man praise God? What great thing had God done in his life? Well, make it very clear. It's not simply that God healed him. God had done for this man something he could not do for himself. We should have something of the same level of appreciation in our hearts part of the problem is that we think we're so well and we don't realize just how lame we actually are apart from Christ. We think we have strength and we take it for granted. But what this lame man learned is that the joy of the Lord is his strength. And what we need to learn is that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Whether we are weak or strong, whether we hear or do not, whether we see or do not, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Whether we can sing or even dance or walk, the joy of the Lord is our strength. What do you have to jump about? So many things. So many things. Most of you know the story of my sister who lays bedbound and cannot walk. It's hard to read this text and not see it in a description of her And if she were given one day to walk, she would jump. And yet, how many days, beloved, do we get to walk? And we wake up in the morning, our feet do what we tell them to do. Our ears and our eyes do what we ask them to do. So we ought not to take the little things for granted. Maybe it's the little things that should cause us to abound so much with joy that the big things that seek to eclipse that joy might become small. When you open your ears and your eyes tomorrow morning, be grateful. Know that the earthly healing here in the text, by the way, is is in many ways not the point of the text. And I think this is important. You know that if I could, I would do anything to help my sister. I remember in Florida pastoring a family who, very heartbreaking story, their 12-year-old son died of leukemia. And I can remember the dad telling me, I would do anything if I could just take his place. And it's the one thing I cannot do. And beloved, it's the one thing Jesus did. He gave what he had to give. Not silver or gold, earthly treasure, or fading temple. He gave himself. He allowed himself to become the lame, the broken, the exile, so that you would be healed mended and have joy the point of the text is not the healing but the power of the kingdom that it displays in fact if you think about it going on from this text watch Peter and John they do not heal every lame person that they meet and even this lame man stopped jumping and later in life stopped walking and one final time in his life he laid down And then at the punctuated moment, even stop breathing. But where is the lame man now? He's jumping again, leaping for joy in the courts of God, praising the name of Jesus of Nazareth with the people of God. And there he will never be lame again. He will never be blind again. He will never be deaf again. He will never beg again. He will forever express his gratitude to the Lord. In many ways, that's the point of the text. Not the momentary emblem of the kingdom, but its everlasting power that resides with Jesus in heaven. That is the point of the text. This man once and for all climactically entered the beautiful gate. And you and I will too. That is the hope of the text. You, beloved, lame as you are, I don't mean to insult you shall be lifted up by a hand even sweeter than Peter's, taken up into glory, and you'll even learn to dance, jumping, praising in the presence of God. One final point. Calvin has an interesting take on this text. He observes that while Peter and John did not have silver or gold to give, they gave what they had to give. And in the gospel, it's already been said, Jesus gave what he had to give. What is... What is the point? What does the church have to give to the world? We may be expecting me to say silver or gold. And I think that would miss the point of the text. The point of the text is not giving alms, so that's a good thing. Condescending to help the poor and the needy is an excellent thing. But what is it that the world uniquely, don't miss it, what is it that the church uniquely has to give to the world. What do we really have to give? It's the gospel. The world sits at the edge of the temple. The world sits at the brink of heaven and hell, the outermost part of that which is holy. And only the gospel can lift them up and bring them in. What we have to give, beloved, is the good news of the gospel And the gospel, good news, is very properly named because it is the beautiful gate. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that Jesus left heaven. He exited the temple. He went and suffered outside the city, outside the camp, that we who are by nature sinners and exiles might be declared righteous, justified, reconciled saints, that we might enter the presence of the Lord and abound in the hope and the joy of the Lord. And I do pray, Lord, that all those who are sitting here today would in their own hearts have a sincere faith and a sincere desire to glorify and enjoy you. Might no one leave this place today in unbelief. Might you grant them by lifting them up the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus of Nazareth. And for your people, Lord, you know that even those who are physically able to walk can sometimes find themselves stuck upon a mat. We ask, O Lord, that our condescending hands of love would reach down and lift a brother or sister up. We pray that even more, the love of Christ, the name of Jesus, would lift us all up, that the joy of the Lord would cause us to not simply walk before you, but to leap and to jump with joy. We thank you for all that you are doing in your church. We ask that you would continue that good work until the great day that we all pass together through the beautiful gate. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.